Hi, this is Ando from the Fight for a Happy Life podcast. You and I are listening to the wise words of Sifu T. W. Smith of Kung Fu Podcasts. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. In episode 167, we're going to be charting the terrain to finding Chinese martial arts inside of the geography of late imperial China. This episode is going to be built around an essay by Agent of Action, Dr. Ben Junkins. You can find all of his work by going to kungfupodcast.com forward slash Ben, or his blog is called Kung Fu Tea. The essay we're referring to, he wrote in 2013, and it is titled, The Soldier, the Marketplace Boxer, and the Recluse, Mapping the Social Location of the Martial Arts in Late Imperial China. During this podcast, I'm going to give you a quick reminder of how we got to this point. We're going to be looking at three critical questions regarding the authenticity of martial arts. There will be a talk about the lacking of attention to the core concepts. And as a martial artist, we know how important that is, right? You can focus on these details and forget the core concept that everything is supposed to be built around. And that can cause a lot of problems, which is exactly why we're here. Mapping the social landscape of late imperial China. So if you are looking for martial arts, authentic martial arts, where do you look? And not having an idea of the landscape can lead you in almost any direction as you're going through it. We're going to be bringing up the work of Dr. Victoria Cass, whose work will bring up issues such as the cult of piety, the city-centered romantic movement during this time, the great change of social movement, and the revival of reclusive living. We're going to be talking about loyal soldiers, big boxers, and all of this is going to be associated of you deciding how authentic are your martial arts and how are you going to go about reassessing today where your martial arts came from. And I can just about guarantee you each one of us can track it back to one of these three areas very easily. A little Christmas news. Friend of the program and agent of action, Ian Abernathy, is giving 15% off to Kung Fu Podcast listeners on his videos. He's a great resource, somebody I could highly recommend to keep exploring your martial arts. To get to his site, you can go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash Ian, I-A-I-N. It'll take you right there to his website. When you check out, put in promotional code KFP15. So, let's get ourselves started. In the last two podcasts, we looked at the reevaluation of the theater combat. And as usual, I'm going to give you a very quick update. You'll need to go back to listen to those two podcasts in order to catch up to here so this will make more sense for you. We discussed where a scholar named Joseph Needham and then later his predecessor, Charles Holcomb, their research made the argument that traditional Chinese martial arts originated from Taoist or Buddhist-like philosophy and teachings. Needham's work, the earlier work, was easier to dismiss. Holcomb's work, on the other hand, had a firmer position, and he was able to present his argument much better than Needham did. So, 
Part of the reason for these essays was that some of this interests me for personal reasons. I was always taught that Kung Fu was for show, for health, and for combat. And that's how we looked at it. Everything that we did was associated with differentiating it in those three areas. Sports was not included in that when I was learning. That came later, but that wasn't how I had looked at it, nor do I still approach it that way now for me personally. Now, some styles would emphasize more parts of show, more parts of health, or more parts of combat than others. For example, Lama Pai and Hopgar has very little showmanship to it. It's not a very attractive art, but it's an extraordinarily effective combative art. Tai Chi Tuan had both combative and health components of it, but the combative components of it during the course of time were minimized and the health components of it were maximized and actually watered to that direction so it made it more effective to teach masses. So when I was looking at these essays, I was thinking about, well, where did my lineages come from? Where did my teachers come from? Ben had shared with us that in late imperial China, that for the most part, most martial artists were going to be grouping themselves in a few areas. For example, Combative terms, caravan guard guys, bodyguards, military, and village militia would have been all under these combative skills. Then there was the showmanship guys, and these guys were also important. In fact, many martial artists would say that they put more emphasis on good technique than many of the other guys. But these were your guys like Jackie Chan, for example, who were in the Chinese opera. They demonstrated strong ties to religion during their performances because many times it was the temples that were paying for them, and this was part of the core argument of Holcomb's essays. Under that category, you also had street performers or slash circus-type guys who were putting on shows right there in the streets, and you would just pay to get something done or see them do something. The third area were bandits and rebels or secret societies. These guys that needed a little bit of cloak and dagger work that tried to stay off of the grid and was still practicing and teaching and using martial arts, but for different reasons and in different ways. There was a fourth group that kind of blended into all three areas, and that was the group that practiced martial arts, but also the health and medicine group which normally made sense in the sense that if you had combative arts, you also had to have some sort of first aid and clinic responses as far as healing arts go. Just like walking, swimming, and weight training is prescribed today, back in those days, physical exercises such as boxing was prescribed to help people stay healthier. When I look at my lineage, I could go back and trace it back to caravan guards, militia, and secret society training, where they were training enforcers, for example, for the secret societies, bodyguards, and then I also learned two styles of Bakwas, and this was one of the interesting parts. One of the Bakwa styles I learned was used to recruit people, to raise curiosity, and the other was taught specifically for combative styles. Then later, I learned quite a bit from a gentleman named Lau Pei Jung down in Houston, Texas, where he taught me several styles that was associated to improving health. And this was after the war, and he was a physical education teacher at the University of Shanghai. The reason I mention this is sometimes there was a great deal of, let's say, technique overlap, but there were always very distinct differences in the tone of training. 
when we were practicing for combative skills, there was an emphasis not just of technique, but of the strategies that you were supposed to be using in order to make that art work for the principles it was based on. Now, that was, let's say, relaxed a little bit when you were practicing a little bit more for health because we were also responsible for making sure that we could look at any particular style and point to the areas that were there to just help us improve, for example, hip mobility, or this was not supposed to be interpreted as a striking technique, but more or less as a folding or grappling technique. That's why these essays have piqued my interest, because now you can clearly go back and see how someone may determine on their own or based on what they've researched, what authentic martial arts means to them. Let's consider three critical questions regarding the authenticity of martial arts, because, you know, how are we supposed to actually understand the traditional Chinese martial arts today? Are they really practices intended to be a form of practical self-defense? Or are they some sort of social performance, part of the circus, part of the act? Are the arts that we practice today actually authentic? Now, in this essay, we're going to be defining late imperial China as pretty much the mid to late Ming dynasty and then the Qing dynasty. There are a few large questions that really drive the field of Chinese martial studies. In the earlier podcasts, where Ben had reviewed Charles Holcomb's Theater of Combat, a critical look at the Chinese martial arts, there was an effort made there to answer the sort of questions if they're part of the social performance or they're part of practical self-defense. Professor Holcomb argues his research to the root of Chinese martial arts from his perspective. Then we hear a counter-argument. And at face value, it seems just the opposite. And it's also done by scholars who research their field with good intent and non-biased. They're just trying to find what they believe is the actual truth. Then it turns out that they're making the same argument. Ben says that there has been much progress in the field of martial studies at a forensic and scholarship level. However, we are still having the same very basic conversations that Holcomb introduced in 1990. The historians in the field have introduced a lot of important nuance into our discussions. Yet the anthropologists who write on the Chinese martial arts simply take it for granted that they are mostly about social performance. Nor do their ethnographic observations do anything to challenge that view. Now, if this is true today, then it is entirely possible that it is also true in the past. Furthermore, while the persistent connection between the boxing societies, millennial cults, and late imperial rebels may be difficult to theorize, we are not allowed to simply and cannot allow ourselves to simply ignore it. Ben states that part of the problem is that we're lacking attention to the core concepts. Ben concluded his review of Holcomb by arguing that the problem may not actually be in how we are looking at the historical record. Holcomb and then his later critics actually show a remarkable degree of agreement on this front. Rather, the real issue is that we have not thought carefully enough about our core concepts. This lack of attention to the core concepts creates a certain degree of slipperiness in our theories. 
for me, this is the part of the essay that I really began to enjoy, and I continue to do this work at Kung Fu Podcast. It is a firm reminder to look deeper than what is available at face value. Whenever you look at the ocean, it's very simple and easy sometimes to see the calmness or the power of the sea. But we will often forget that there is a powerful undercurrent beneath that will go usually unnoticed. During this essay, you're going to find that there is a rip current that could pull you in many directions if you don't apply more depth to the research. And without that depth, the end result is that some individuals have one view of what constitutes, quote, authentic martial arts, while other students, with a reasonable argument, may be able to come to a very different conclusion. And for us in the West that practice martial arts, this should not be surprising. Ben goes on to write that the idea of the martial arts was introduced and popularized in the West by the Japanese. Their ancient feudal structure and later program of promoting Budo as an official ideology in the early 20th century led to a very unique relationship between their hand combat systems and the rest of society. There is simply no reason to think that these basic ideas should provide a workable map for understanding the intricacies of Chinese popular culture. Moving forward in this episode, we want to understand that conceptually speaking, the term martial arts is a very modern invention. It is an attempt to group like categories from many cultures in different areas of the world together because that project makes sense in relation to certain other modern ideas. But it is extremely unlikely that a 19th century bandit in the hills of southern China would see himself as a member of the same class of beings as a medieval Japanese warrior or bureaucrat simply because they both owned a couple of swords and a rifle. This episode is going to expand on that same basic idea that, yes, Modern days, because I practice in martial arts and I do my thing here in the Chinese martial arts, but I still feel a connection and in the same area with, for example, my good friend Ian Abernathy or Ando Merzwa, who introduced the show. Yet, if we were dropped back in time and had similar skills and from different places, in China, I would have never felt connected, for example, to my karate brethren over in Japan because it was totally a different culture. This is part of that thing that we have to drop back in time in order to dissect a little bit. In one of his other essays, Ben focused on how Chinese martial culture might look if we were to break things down by occupation and profession. I had mentioned some of this earlier. Of course, that is not the only way to map out what these relationships may have looked like. In fact, It simply pushes our question one step back. It is all well and good to say that village militia members may not have identified all that much with, for example, urban street performers. But the real question is why wouldn't they? Why did some groups develop shared identities in certain times and places while others were excluded? 
If we could answer that one question, we might start to actually open up a new window onto popular culture in late imperial China. Furthermore, we might also get a better understanding of how it is possible to eventually craft the relatively unified identity behind Goshu, the national arts, and Wushu, martial arts, in the 20th century. Exploring these questions in depth would take a book, but in this episode, we're going to point to a few places where one could start. Just a quick reminder, coming up in April of 2019, we have the Shirite Jiu-Jitsu Kai International Conference. It is going to be packed with excellent teachers and plenty of programming. If you would like to go, it would be a pleasure to meet you and work out with you there. Go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash Shirite and get the latest information. So let's break out our map. If we're going to find our way, what is the social landscape of late imperial China? And to do this, we're going to bring in the work of Dr. Victoria Cass, who is currently a visiting professor at Johns Hopkins University who writes on Chinese literature and religion. She is perhaps best known for her 1999 volume, Dangerous Women. This popular work provides a highly accessible introduction to many of the central questions of gender studies in late imperial China. In fact, Ben used it as a source in his recent discussions of the literary antecedent of Yim Wing Chung and Ning Moi. One of the reasons that the work Dangerous Women works so well as a general introduction is that Professor Cass realizes that it is not possible to talk about complex social structures as though they exist in some sort of vacuum. These things occur in a specific time and place, and it is vitally important to understand that terrain. The social geography of late imperial China is complex, and it is far from uniform. It is bisected by political upheavals and colored by competing vision of what the new ideal society and the life should look like. So as a result of all that, it is not enough to discuss, for example, Chinese women in the abstract. Rather, to have any real level of comprehension, they must be examined in relation to these larger structures. The variety of choices and life paths that different women adopted are meaningless without some explanation of the environment that they lived in and the social and philosophical currents that informed their world. Of course, it is possible to make exactly the same argument about martial arts. The traditional combat styles were a specific expression of larger trends within martial culture. However, much like gender, martial culture is such a broad category of thoughts and values that it touches on practically everything. It is simply not enough to say that it affects something. Rather, the question is why does it express itself in a specific way in this setting, and yet it looks very different in another environment? In short, why is there no simple answer to the riddle of the Chinese martial arts. To begin to examine these questions, we need a map 
of the social geography of late imperial China. In relative terms, this is a brief episode. We're going to need a simple map that will still provide us enough necessary information to get us from where we are to where we need to go. And fortunately, Professor Cass provides us with such an outline in the introduction of her volume of work. If you're interested in understanding more about the Ming and Qing era of popular culture, but you lack a background in the subject, this one chapter of her work provides a very useful overview of the big trends that you have got to be aware of if you're going to talk about things, for example, martial arts or gender. Obviously, Professor Cass's essay focuses on the role of women during this time period, but the basic discussion that she gives can inform any number of investigations. The social geography, dynamic interaction of three norms of the time. Professor Cass's basic argument is that popular culture in the late imperial period can be thought of as a dynamic interaction between three different sets of norms. In turn, these yielded three competing visions of the ideal society. These three normal social developments of late imperial China directly influenced the traditional martial arts that we see today. And the first one we're going to talk about is the cult of piety. The cult of piety was the most widespread of these social developments. It focused around proper behavior in the family, its major center of worship. The more common term for this cult of piety is Confucianism. Professor Cass dislikes this label as the actual social performance of virtue often went beyond what any scholar or philosophical thinker might explicitly demand. Further, when discussing Confucianism, the emphasis has historically been placed on elite males who comprise the government bureaucracy and local gentry. However, the more general cult of piety found expression in every facet of Chinese culture, even within areas that were traditionally treated with disdain, such as among women and martial artists. The next social development of this time is the city-centered romantic movement. The Ming was a time of economic growth and dynacism. This was seen in a number of areas, but it was most obvious in the expanding cities that attracted large populations during this period. The rise of a new strain of urban culture was most obvious in the south, in areas like Fujian and Guangdong. Both provinces were blessed with a number of good ports, and they were nourished by triangular trade between southeast China, southern China, and Japan. Urban spaces had definitely begun to develop their own character during the Song Dynasty. However, this process quickened during the late imperial period. Cities developed a new middle class with their own sense of identity and of value. This new urban class gave rise to its own unique culture. The cult of piety, which had reigned all throughout the countryside, was premised on an absolute devotion to the ancestors who had gone before them, individuals who had quite literally become household gods, 
who could only be appeased through rigorous observation of propriety and filial decorum. This was the basis of all proper family arrangements, and by extension, the state. That was because that the piety demanded by this cult was dangerous because it called for the sacrifice of the self to uphold the norms of the system, and not just in abstract ways, but often also in very concrete and final terms. Scholars who accepted death rather than serving a new government, widows who committed suicide at the death of their husband, and soldiers who fought hopeless battles against impossible odds were the saints and the martyrs of this system. Professor Cass argues that these were not marginal or victimized people. Rather, they were the fanatical followers of a very specific set of moral ideas. They believed that by enacting huge sacrifices to maintain virtue in their own lives, their families, communities, and even the state of China would be blessed with stability and prosperity. Furthermore, these beliefs were reinforced and supported by the state who, through the Bureau of Rights, sought out those who had made heroic sacrifices and built monuments in their honor. Yet this Confucian view of the family and the ideal society did not sit well with many members of the newly ascendant middle class. After all, these were the values of the social elites and the rustic peasants who had a limited sense of their own class identity anyway. Merchants and craftsmen were not particularly well regarded in the traditional Confucian social hierarchy, and it seems that for many members of the middle class, the feeling became mutual. While success in the official examination system remained the only real means for political advancement, many of these urban families decided to instead turn their attention to building their own personal economic empires. Ben states that from his historical work on Foshan, that these families did continue to produce official examination degree winners, but these individuals made no efforts to seek a career in government. Instead, they turned their attention to the economic marketplace and the development of their own local communities. China's cities during the Ming Dynasty were among the largest and the most sophisticated in the world. Compared to those cities of a previous era, these would have been remarkably recognizable with business dominating the downtown and smaller shops and housing spreading out in rings. Entertainment was a major part of the city life. Theaters, tea houses, street performances, displays of art and poetry, sophisticated geisha establishments, and martial arts demonstrations were among the luxuries that could be found in any southern urban area of sufficient size. What is most interesting about these urban areas is that they were so self-conscious of their identity and status. They fully realized that they were developing a new culture that differed radically from the cult of piety. They even coined a name for this process. This new culture that moved away from the long-standing cultural piety was called Jubian, or the Great Change. As a side note, if you'd like to get more details about the martial arts and this subtle cult of piety and how it was blended in through this time period, I'd encourage you to go to the Kung Fu Podcast on Christianity, 
meeting martial arts. It talks all about this piety in Asia, dads turning in their sons for not doing the details of the ritual as they were supposed to, and how that ends up influencing everything else in society in different areas of Asia. Because as Ben explains in his essay, passion and authenticity were at the heart of this new transformation. Traditionalists found meaning through group membership and sacrifice, yet the process of urbanization disrupted many of the most important traditional groups. The clan and the extended family became less relevant in urban areas as it was simply too expensive for all but the richest families to maintain a clan temple, even though they did provide large economical advantages if you could afford to build one. Instead, smaller social guilds, literary schools, and reading groups came to dominate the social scene. Some of these groups even adopted a reformist and a political stance. These associations helped spread a new philosophy of the life throughout the urban middle class. They claimed that the key to a good life was to live with passion, or qing. In modern terms, we might say that this was a decisive turn away from the repression of the self for the benefit of others in favor of living an authentic life based on the expression of powerful and impulsive feelings. The Chinese word qing refers specifically to romance and passion. Not surprisingly, this new philosophy led to a profound shift in family life. Husbands and wives started to view one another as potential aristocratic and life partners rather than simply leaders and subordinates. Yet the qing revolution went far beyond the bedroom. This same sense of authenticity came to be applied to every aspect of daily life in the urban areas. Urbanites came to appreciate and find ecstatic meaning in a well-carved inkstone, a miniature potted tree, or the perfectly poured cup of tea. Some educated members of this class were even responsible for the renewed interest in Chan Buddhism, which happened during the late imperial period. Then the third social movement, that we want to discuss is the revival of reclusive living. Taking to its furthest extreme, the urban middle class evolved into something very different. The third social movement that Professor Cass described was the path of the mystical or simply mad recluse. Such individuals were by no means a new element in Chinese culture. Taoism has long promoted a certain political quietism, encouraging truly cultured gentlemen to shun office, seek instead the solitude of wild places and deep contemplation. Nor, in all honesty, was this basic impulse really confined to a single philosophical movement. The Chinese long-standing popular religion had a timeless custom to venerating mountains and grottoes as sacred spaces. Nor was it all that uncommon for certain schools of Confucianism to claim that one could not truly be a cultured gentleman without being a recluse. Ironically, it actually becomes something of a prerequisite for high office in certain times, meaning that it was not uncommon to find a fair number of urban recluses in Beijing or in other important cities. 
This obsession with living a natural and authentic life among the urban middle class in late imperial China sets the stage for an explosion in the number of mystical recluses. Before we go too much further down that path, consider for a moment a modern-day social obsession and how they have reshaped our lives. Interestingly enough, when you're part of an obsession, it doesn't really seem like an obsession, does it? Because we think it's just how life is now. We're just doing it because that's what you're supposed to be doing. How has the social media affected our lives? It is, by all definitions, a modern obsession. We can even narrow down part of that into the martial arts. How has social media made galvanizing changes to the martial arts? We make jokes about Sifu or Sensei YouTube, online martial arts classes, even the online Black Belt Academy. Modern-day obsessions of social media, online availability, combined with the society obsession for changing identity or convenience, for example, has absolutely changed the way that martial arts is defined today. And you might look at that arguably as going in either direction you want, for the better or for the worse. Another couple of modern obsessions that you could watch out for are things like binge-watching TV, like Netflix fever, eating out, and, of course, sports fanatics. Well, when this revival of being a social recluse comes back around, these social recluses as individuals tended to follow certain social scripts, which made them very easy to identify. Some hermits were actually able to find a place in the countryside, while others, because of a career, maybe family or business commitments, were instead forced to live out their calling in the cities. For such individuals, having a natural-looking garden, or perhaps a rustic study and an art collection assembled to express the power of the wild and untamed spaces was the key to living the proper life as a recluse. On a certain level, it did not really matter where most reclusive individuals lived. Indeed, they could be found all over the country, yet they were all united by a few key characteristics. What motivated them was a burning desire to somehow transcend the normal and mundane, whereas the peasant might extol to the virtues of the clan and the merchant the consumption of a fine object. The hermit wished to rise above all of this. A return to nature and a natural state suggested one obvious way to accomplish this. In practice, this turn to the transcendent often necessitated some sort of self-denial or abstinence practice. For the less dedicated urban recluse, this might simply mean making a big show of turning away callers. But many individuals made very substantial sacrifices. The term that the scholars use is ascetic practices that are characterized by suggesting the practice of severe self-discipline and abstinence from all forms of indulgence, and it's done so typically for religious reasons. It is not uncommon for famous recluses to adopt, for example, vegetarian or other odd diets. Ascetic practices were the norm for the recluse of the time. Of course, the Taoist longevity arts were pretty common, including both breathing exercises and more rigorous gymnastics. Military training occasionally fell into the realm of ascetic practices that might be adopted by 
for example, an eccentric gentleman. If you are actually planning on living by yourself in the deep wilderness, having some real military and survival skills would be very practical. So now it's time to bring the martial arts back into popular Chinese culture. We are now in a good position to reintroduce the traditional fighting styles to our conversation. We can now gain a much better understanding of what the Chinese martial arts were by asking how they may have been expressed within each of these three different movements within the social culture. In many ways, the cult of piety forms the baseline that the other two social movements described by Professor Cass grow out of and react against. As such, it is appropriate to start here. Let's take a moment and consider where we are as far as this essay goes. We've asked questions regarding the authenticity of martial arts. We've defined late imperial China in this episode as being during the Ming and Qing dynasties. We've also identified the fact that some of the arguments being made is due to a lack of attention to core concepts. I presented that martial arts, as the term that we know it today, is pretty much a modern invention and that it was primarily a Japanese concept. That does not give us the ability to interpret it into Chinese culture. We begin laying out the social landscape of the late imperial period, introduced Professor Cass's work on dangerous women, which provided us in that one chapter the ability to break down Chinese culture during the late imperial period into three primary sections, the cult of piety, the city-centered romantic movement, and the revival of the reclusive living. Those three areas are the areas that we're going to be focusing on as we look at for defining and finding martial arts into those three social movements. When we pick our bags back up and start to exercise again, we're going to be looking at Confucianism and how it shapes martial arts during this period. We'll take a very detailed look at a loyal soldier, big city boxers, guards, gangsters, performers, doctors, the retreating world of rivers and lakes, two real-time, big-time Chinese martial artists from the time period, and then the conclusion of how we can determine the factors that would need to be considered to answer the question of whether your martial arts are authentic. You know, one of my friends recently told me that they got out of the martial arts and even their exercise because they were lacking motivation. Sometimes we have to look inside to get motivation, and sometimes we can find inspiration outside. And if you're looking for some of that, I would highly encourage you to go over to groundsharkprints.com. My friend John Connell has some fantastic work there, and it's designed to send a message and encourage you to practice your martial arts. That's groundsharkprints.com. Don't forget to check out Ian Abernathy's videos when you check out, get 15% off your order by using KFP15 as your promotion code. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
in episode number 167. Remember that part two is going to be coming out in a few days, and you'll also have an opportunity to go in and answer some questions associated with this episode. You can go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash three paths, and you can find some more information there when you log in. Take care of yourself, practice hard, and I'll talk with you again next time.